Well, I want to turn to the book of Acts, not unsurprisingly on Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 1, actually, and I'll invite you to stand with me as we read these verses together. And I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read down through verse 14. And would you just listen to God's word for us today? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this commandment, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said this, and after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. Elizabeth and Michael DeLury in our church recently welcomed their first child into their home, their son Michael. And not surprisingly, let's go ahead and have we following along here? Uh, not surprisingly, I noticed that Elizabeth's Facebook feed has been awash with photos of young Michael, this perfect, precious little baby boy. And, you know, uh, he, he's the grandson of Roger and Debbie Freed. And recently, uh, this week, however, I noticed uh, Elizabeth posted this pic with the caption, Mom, stop taking my picture all of the time. So... Uh, I, it, it caused me to chuckle a little bit because I remember as a young parent, I'm sure when Mary and I became parents, we did the same thing, although that was so long ago, I don't think Facebook was, was a thing yet, but we had lots and lots of pictures, and I remember bringing Caleb up here on the platform and showing him off in a little sailor outfit, I remember that even to this day. And even when Joshua, my second son, came along, same thing, lots of pictures, lots of videos, lots of opportunity to kind of show him off. Uh, but, but then 18 months later, and all of our kids were born 18 months apart, 18 months later, our, our third child comes along, and Micah is born. And of course, our video camera was on the blink, and let's be honest, by the time you get to your third child, pictures are just not as uh, much a priority. 
survival is the priority, right? Because you're no longer in man-to-man defense. You're in a full zone court kind of press kind of thing. And so here is Micah's baby picture. Uh, I, I took that yesterday. Uh, that might be a, a little bit of a, an exaggeration, but uh, the point I want to make is it's tough being number three. You know, when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, something like this can sometimes occur in our churches. We know God the Father. We we see him on every page of the Old Testament. He's the grand creator. And of course, we know God the Son. He was God with us. He became a man. He showed us how to live. He died for our sins. But it gets a little fuzzier, doesn't it? When it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit. We can lose sight of who he is and what he does and his role in our lives. And so in this passage, I want you to notice that Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the disciples' response is not, oh, we can't wait, tell me more. It's this. When are you going to restore, to the, restore us the kingdom of Israel? Now think about that. We'll come back to it in a moment. But one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is something we all too easily gloss over is because the Holy Spirit is to... Uh, one of the roles, one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. Now Jesus emphasized the Spirit often. He said, all sins will be forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it is good that I go because when I go, he comes. He will teach you all that I was teaching you. But as the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to point us back to Jesus. His mission is to empower us to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus. In fact, Dale Bruner wrote a book called The Holy Spirit, the Shy Member of the Trinity. I want to just read a passage from that. He said, one of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Holy Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity. Paul in 2 Timothy 1.7 calls it the spirit of power but the spirit of deference, the spirit of a concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness of, we often experience of self-centeredness, but the shyness of other-centeredness, in a word, the shyness of love. I want you to listen to some of the things Jesus said about the Holy Spirit's ministry. In John 14, he said, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will bring to your, to your remembrance all that I have said. Notice that the Spirit points to Jesus, not himself. John 15, when the Counselor comes, he will bear witness to me. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus, not himself. In John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me, Jesus says. So the Holy Spirit just does not seek his own glory, but he shines the spotlight. He gives the glory to Jesus. He's not clamoring for attention for himself. Dale Brunner says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit can be pictured in this way. 
The Spirit withdraws from sight and points to Jesus saying, notice him, listen to him, pay attention to him, fall in love with him, be preoccupied with him. That's the whole ministry of the Spirit. It's not to draw attention to himself, but to keep drawing people back to Jesus. And so Bruner says, it's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we become overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, the relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being Cinderella outside the ballroom if the prince is honored inside his kingdom. Now, I was trying to think of a, a way to illustrate this. And I thought of the, the, the old film. Do you remember the, the, the film Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Of course, there's the witch and the poisoned apple and Snow White singing, Someday my prince will come. But then there's the seven dwarves. And you know the dwarves, they love Snow White. They risk everything for her. They protect her, they feed her, they keep her, they shelter her. But then when the prince comes along, they kind of get the shaft if you think about it. But of course the amazing thing is about them is that they are not, as they don't get upset when the prince comes, they're thrilled. There's a selflessness, a beauty and simplicity of their heart. The prince gets the bride and all they do is rejoice. That's the Holy Spirit. He keeps telling the bride, the church, to love the prince, follow the prince. Someday, the prince will come. Now, we come to this moment in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. This is it. This is the culmination of his ministry. He has accomplished all that he came to do. He taught us to live. He died for our sins. He rose again in victory over death. So we have the resurrection. We've got the glorified body. The disciples have experienced all these things. And these last 40 days have been something else. And he says to them, don't leave Jerusalem just yet. But you wait, you wait for the gift of my Father. My Father is going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to teach you all that I've taught you. You need to wait for the Holy Spirit. You must wait for the baptism of my Spirit. We baptized in water this morning, that is appropriate, but let me remind you, Jesus wants all of his followers to be baptized in the fire and the passion of God's Spirit. And he says, brothers, you're going to get power. It's going to be something else. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait. And then they ask him, and I would almost consider this to be one of the dumbest questions in the Bible. Dr. Miller, a couple of weeks ago, talked about dumb questions, and I thought it was brilliant the way he brought it up. I think maybe I should do a whole sermon series on dumb questions in the Bible. But maybe some of you are teachers and you can relate to this, but have you ever been teaching somebody and you feel like you've been making progress, things are going well, and you go home and say, sweetheart, they're finally getting it, it's coming along, they are there, it's good. 
we had a good day today. But then you go back the next day and the students ask a question that really exposes their knowledge or their lack thereof, and you just think, I quit. I'm done. I am retiring. I'm going to sell insurance or, or drive truck. Pastors have these thoughts often. I will tell you that. But I want you to imagine Jesus. I've been telling them about this moment. I've been teaching them about how they are to live and how they're to live for others, how to lay their lives down, how to care about other people, more about themselves. I've been telling them what the kingdom of God really looks like. I've been telling them about self-sacrifice, about laying their dreams down and their lives down for me, about serving one another. So when I tell them the Holy Spirit is coming to help them, what do they do? They ask this question. Is this the time that the kingdom of God is going to be restored to Israel? Jesus, like are we going to get back on top now? Is it time yet? We've been waiting a long time for this. Is it finally time? This is everything Jesus has been trying to move them away from. They want political power. And too often, that's what the church wants. God wants us to have a spiritual power where people are changed and their lives are different and they get saved. But Jesus wonders, guys, are you serious? Are, are you kidding me? You still don't get it? Pastor Albert Tate looks at this next verse and he says, we often read the next verse as if it is inspirational. He says, no. It's irritational. Jesus is irritated. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive the Spirit and, be my, and have power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost posts of the world. And then suddenly, whoa, I am out of here, Jesus says. And he goes, lift off, beam me up, Scotty, I'm done. And I think Jesus was, I'm out. And he ascends to glory and he says, Holy Spirit, you got to do the rest. It, it's, it's your job now. And, and so watch this. The disciples are standing there and they watch Jesus leave them. King James says they were gazing. <laughs> can, can you imagine that moment? The, the NIV says they were looking intently. What happens now? Where do we go? And I could just imagine Jesus getting up to heaven and he's looking at the angels saying, hey, we made it, you know, good job. Hey, let's catch up. Let's do those kinds of things. Welcome back, Jesus. But he looks down at these disciples and they're just gazing into the sky they look and they look and they look and I would argue this morning they were experiencing a moment marked by crisis they were at a moment suddenly where everything they knew 
And everything they were familiar with is no longer with them. Everything that, 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 that is ahead is not clear at all. And so they're stuck watching. They're stuck in the familiar and, and the comfortable and something that they could identify with is just floated away. And they don't know where to go next because what was is no longer and what will be they are uncertain of. Anybody here this morning know what it's like to be stuck? Anybody here know what it feels like to be stuck looking at the past? Everything you once knew is not there anymore. Everything you knew about the church, it's changed. You thought maybe at one point it made sense to you, but things are different. Something happened, and now it doesn't make sense. And you, you thought you knew it all, and now you know nothing. Maybe this morning, you're stuck gazing. Stuck on the memories Stuck on the way it used to be. So focused on what was, you can't focus on what could be. I hear this in church. We like the way the church was. We liked it when we could sing those old songs. We liked doing church the old way. And maybe you're stuck because life has changed and you don't like change. Well, those people who left, they left because we aren't doing it right, Pastor. And so you find yourself stuck thinking about what was. But notice this, two angels appear. Why do you stand here, they say, looking at the sky? Why are you standing here stuck? The same Jesus, the same way he went up, he's coming down. He's coming back again. And I want you to notice the big implication is this. Disciples, you've got work to do. You don't have time to be stuck gazing. You've got an assignment on your life. You've got a purpose that you've been called to. You don't have time to be stuck. And then I thought about this passage and I realized something. Maybe this won't be significant to you, but it was to me. You know, there's a big difference between being stuck and waiting for. There's a big difference between being stuck and waiting for. Stuck means I'm looking at the past, dreaming about the past, wanting the past, paralyzed by the past. Stuck means I'm longing for what was. I'm preoccupied with what I don't have any longer. I'm paralyzed because I don't know what comes next. But Jesus didn't tell them to stay stuck. He told them to wait. And there's a difference. You see, when I'm waiting for something, that is different. Jesus didn't call them to be stuck. He told them to wait. Well, when I'm waiting... I'm believing God is about to do something very good. I'm anticipating 
that something good is about to happen. I'm anticipating through my prayers and through my waiting that whatever comes next is good. I'm ready to go whenever and wherever he says go. You see, Jesus didn't call the disciples to get stuck looking at the sky. He tells them to wait. Jesus tells them to wait and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the disciples finally get it and they wake up and they take their eyes off the sky. They go into that upper room and this is what the Bible says. They all join together constantly in prayer. They learned how to wait. They joined in prayer. Now let me say this. If prayer is what it took to unleash the Holy Spirit in the early church. How much more do you think we're going to need prayer in our churches today? Think about what they did. The Bible says they prayed constantly, continually. I think of 1 Thessalonians 5. Be joyful always, pray continually, the Bible says. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Prayer is how they waited. They took prayer seriously. Notice that it wasn't only continually, but it was, it was also corporately. Did you know that, notice that each of the disciples are listed here? I think what God might be telling us is that each of the disciples were at their post praying. In other words, this wasn't just for the prayer team. Those people, those kind of odd people who just like to pray. No, this is all of us. This is for everybody. And, and i got to be honest with you this morning. I don't know if we are the kind of church that is willing to wait. In our instant age, are we willing to wait on God? But listen, it's the only way he comes. I so appreciated a couple of weeks ago. I know it caught some of you off guard. Pastor Jason had us get into groups in the morning worship service and pray together. I know that caught a lot of us off guard. We said, what in the world? Or what are we doing? And yet, remember what Jesus said? He said, my house will be called a house of preaching? No. My house will be called a house of worship? No. My house will be called a house of prayer. Vance Havner said this. He said, the problem is the situation is desperate and we aren't. You know why the church is floundering? So much in evangelicalism today, we want political power. And we forgot that God wants to give us spiritual power. Peter Kreeft is a Christian professor at Boston College, and he said this. He said, I strongly suspect that if we saw all the difference, even the tiniest of our prayers make, 
and all the people those little prayers were destined to affect and all the consequences of those prayers down through the centuries, we would be so paralyzed with awe at the power of prayer that we would be unable to get up off our knees for the rest of our lives. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. I don't know what you collect. My son collects decks of cards. Some of you I know collect angel figurines. I think Brian's back there. He collects tractors. Got a... Do you know what God collects? If you went to his house and he would show you what's on his shelf, what's precious to him. In the book of Revelation, it foretells a scene where the 24 elders fall at the feet of Jesus and they each have these golden bowls. What's inside of those bowls is said to be so very fragrant to Christ. In fact, he's been saving these bowls through history. It's his collection. But it's not the bowls that are significant. It's what's inside of those bowls that is so fragrant and beautiful to Christ. Revelation 5.8 says this, Inside are the prayers of the saints. You capture the image? God collects our prayers. When you pray to God, those words are kept because they are of such value to him. And I can't help but ask, Lord, what size of bowl does God need to hold the prayers of North Olmsted Friends Church? A little teeny one? Or is it overflowing? This is my hope for our church. And with this, I'm through. That we would become an Acts to church. You know what happens in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes. It's Pentecost. Party on! Because people are getting saved and they're being baptized by the thousands and the church overturns the world. But listen to me, if we're ever going to be that kind of church, an Acts 2 church, we've got to pray like an Acts 1 church. That doesn't just mean when we hold a prayer meeting. It means that we all make a commitment together. Lord, I'm going to seek you continually. I'm going to pray for our church. I'm going to pray for its pastors. I'm going to pray that I don't get stuck, but that I anticipate, God, you want to do something here. How are you going to use me? I'm open. I'm ready. And when you say go, I'm going to go. But I'm going to wait. For your spirit. Because what happens is this. And again I, I look at the church at large. When I look at the evangelical church today. I see a church that gets really good at marketing. And branding. And perhaps even attracting a crowd. But where's the power? I see a church even in the headlines this week rife with abuse of the most vulnerable. 
And we ought to get on our knees and say, Lord, forgive us. And until we start to take prayer and spiritual power seriously, nothing will happen. But if the Holy Spirit comes and he has our hearts, we will magnify Jesus Christ. May we be that kind of church. Will you pray with me? Father, I don't know what time it is. Um, I don't have a clock in front of me, so I'm, I'm going to trust that we have some time to wait on you. The reality is, in your church today, we're willing to wait until noon. We're willing to wait for a few minutes until we're supposed to go to that next thing. But would you teach us to need you? Would you teach us to be desperate for you? That, Lord, we can't move on without you. And forgive us for trying. I pray, Lord, that this church would become an Acts 2 church because we became an Acts 1 church. And collectively, as a community, we laid it all at the altar and we said, Lord, we're not about our egos. We're not about power in the worldly sense. We just want you. And forgive us, Lord, where we have fallen short in so many ways of being that example of you in our society. Start it with me. Teach me to pray. Teach us to long for you. And in these moments, may we just wait on you. And Lord, would you honor your promise? Send your Holy Spirit. Revive us again. Change the world because you changed me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.